so I mentioned earlier in the retreat that I spent the month of December in India on a pilgrimage to the holy sites, the sites associated with the, the birth, the life, the teachings, and then the death of the Buddha. It was actually the second time that I had made that journey. Guy and I uh, did it a year ago, just the two of us traveled around those sites, exploring and experiencing them. And it was such a profound journey, such an amazing trip, that I wanted to help others to have that experience. So I decided to create a, a pilgrimage, a journey for people in the DPP program that I lead, the Dedicated Practitioners Program. So at our last retreat in April, started talking about it, and gradually a, a group of 13 students uh, came together who wanted to go on the trip with me. And I just got the people together. It was actually organized by this wonderful man, Shantam Seth, who leads pilgrimages for a living. Um, he did all. He and his office did all of the logistical details, and he led, was the leader of the trip, really. I was just there as a co-teacher and, and the facilitator. But it was an amazing journey to be back in India. I've been in India a number of times, but being on this trip with a group of students who had spent the past couple of years really studying the teachings of the Buddha, reading the suttas, um, having this sort of in-depth experience and exposure to these practices. And what this journey does, as I said the other night, is really make the teachings come alive. The suttas, these discourses that we have written down, 26 volumes of the Pali Canon, nearly all begin with, thus have I heard, in such and such a location, the Buddha said this or talked to so-and-so. And so we would be in those places. We'd be in Rajgir and Vulture's Peak and Sravasti, um, Saranath. And there's something about the, the, the visceralness of that, the, the earthiness of that, getting into contact with that, that really shifts how we view these teachings. And it brings the Buddha alive as a human being, as you go through these places where you know that he lived and walked and taught and where he was born and where he died. And there's something quite amazing about both humanizing him so that we see that he's just a human being like us who was born and lived and had these amazing experiences and openings and, of course, difficulties in his life. And then he died, as we all will do. Yet it also really revealed uh, the miracle, the majesty, the amazing aspect of what he did, that this one human being 2,500 years ago, through his insight and his teaching, has really changed the world, has certainly changed all of our lives um, and our, our possibility of freedom and awakening. So we were kind of steeped in that world for, for these weeks that we're on pilgrimage, and it, it just shifts. It's hard to get phone calls there. It's, India is 12 and a half hours time difference. It's like couldn't be more opposite, Re little access to email. So we were really in this um, very ancient world where the, the people of the suttas of Ananda and Sariputta and Mahakashapa and the Buddha, of course, felt more alive than you know the, the political figures and all of the events in the U.S. And, and the rest of the world. And if you've been in India, you know, even though, of course, it's be moved very much into the 21st century, a lot of technology and modernization, in the rural areas, a lot hasn't changed. People still live in 
mud houses with thatch roofs, bullock carts plow fields, people thresh wheat and rice by hand, plant in the paddy fields, carry enormous loads on their heads. So we kind of knew that we were seeing sites that pretty much were like what the Buddha saw. And a lot of his imagery is drawn from these experiences of the world around him. And so again, there was just that sense of connection. And India herself, of course, is a huge teacher. It's it's very intense to travel in India, and it's a land of huge contrasts. We would see sites of such beauty and joy and color and richness, and then immense pollution, degradation, ugliness, you know, of garbage strewn everywhere and polluted rivers and air. We would have have experiences of great kindness shown to us, really people taking such care of us, and also see a lot of suffering, a lot of indifference, a lot of people and animals really in states of great pain and difficulty. And so that's a practice in and of itself, staying open to these uh, extremes that we would constantly be impacted by how to stay open, how to find some sense of balance, equanimity, not push it away and not be overwhelmed. So we were always practicing with that on this trip. And actually just a few days before the retreat, we did a check-in of the group that was on the trip. We all did a conference call and even Shantam called in from India and we were on the phone from all over the country, someone from Canada. And one of the people on the trip talked about how his practice has changed since he got back. He said, there's there's an immediacy to my mindfulness now. You know, it's very easy in the West for many of us to kind of float along in in a kind of vagueness. Life is relatively comfortable. We're taken care of. We've figured out our systems and how to make things relatively present. You can't do that in India. India is in your face all the time. And he said he still carries that with him, this sense of immediacy and a willingness to be with things as they are. Because, again, you really see in India, you you can't change India. You have to change to open to what India is offering. India offers great gifts, but also these challenges really wakes you up. It's another dimension. One of my favorite places in India is Sarnath. It's a small town um, not far from Varanasi, Banaras. And it's the place where the Buddha walked to after his enlightenment and gave his first discourse, the Dharma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. He gave a discourse to these five ascetics, and the heart of the sutta was talking about finding the middle way this um, balance between uh, asceticism, all the ascetic practices that he had been doing, and luxury or indulgence. And he said the way to practice is this middle way between these two. And then he taught the Four Noble Truths, the truths of, of this truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering. So it's a very prominent site in the Buddhist world, the, the sana. But one of my, even though it's quite beautiful, there's a park there, and um, we're actually lucky enough on this trip to be joined by someone who was in DPP, 
but wasn't on the trip. He's an Indian man who now lives in, in the U.S., but he was happened to be traveling back in India at that time. So he and his sister joined us for our trip to Sarnath. And uh, this man, Ajit, speaks, I don't know, speaks, he can chant in Pali. He would often chant for us in our DPP group. And so um, he offered to chant the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta for us in Sarnath, in Pali, you know, with an Indian man who actually has the right accent to do it. But the format that I had that sutta in was my iPod Touch, which I've got everything on, all my Dharma stuff, and I had downloaded all these chants. So he was, I have a photo of him, you know, under a Bodhi tree in uh, Sarnath, chanting from my little gadget, you know, so it's the, really the confluence of the time of the Buddha in the 21st century, but it was quite beautiful to sit there in a circle under this tree with all of these stupas around us, hearing those words uh, that just seemed to be coming across the centuries. But even though that was delightful, actually my more favorite part of Sarnath is a Buddha statue that's in the museum that's close by. It's a statue from the 5th century, and I think it's the most beautiful Buddha statue in the world. And people who see it tend to agree. And I actually found we have a photo of it in the teacher's office. I just happened to see it. It's actually an ad for Shantam's pilgrimage, but it's the only photo that I know exists of this statue because you can't take photos anymore. And so I'll pin it up later because... It conveys something. When our group um, went and saw this statue, we just all plopped down in front of it and gazed at it because there's something it conveys. If you've ever done any exploration into Buddha rupas, Buddha statues, you know it's very hard to find good ones. And the hardest thing is finding one with a face that really conveys a Buddha, a Buddha mind. This one does. And I said as we were talking about our response to this statue that whoever carved it was tuning into that. This statue just radiates equanimity, wisdom, and compassion. It kind of glows. It's some beautiful sandstone. It's got a halo around it. And it's got a downcast gaze, but there's a sweetness to the face. It's really quite remarkable. And you can see why people sometimes start to worship statues because it was so evocative and you really got a sense of, of a being that it was representing. Of course, we have no idea what the Buddha looked like. There were no statues carved of him in his time. It was hundreds of years after that they began to do that. So this is just a representation, but it really spoke of that possibility of the awakened mind, this, this radiance, this ease, this wisdom, this compassion. But we also got interested in the mudra that he was gesturing with. Mudras are these um, ways the hand is held, and they're all very significant. And this is quite a complex one, and it's a little hard to see because it's somewhat inward, and also some of the fingers are broken. Most statues of the Buddha are somewhat broken. All of the places that we visited were basically ruins, um, had been either deliberately ruined by Hindus or Muslims, or had just, through the ravages of time, uh, fallen apart, and this statue was found and, and uh, not restored. That was how it was. 
But I got interested in this and started asking Shantam, and he didn't know. But luckily, Ajit, the man I just spoke of, his sister was with us, and she's an Indian woman, obviously, and living in an ashram in India, and she knew. And what the mudra was was partly this mudra, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with. It's basically the teaching mudra. But it, his, his left hand had a similar kind of mudra with the um, first and third finger joined to the thumb, facing inward at the heart and touching the other hand like this. And so I was really curious about what this mudra meant. And so uh, Ajit's sister talked a little bit about it, and we asked some people, I did some research, and basically what it represents is inner cultivation and outer expression. Inner cultivation, outer uh, action or wisdom. The wisdom and then the expression. And so we actually, it became a Dharma theme for us for a few days as we talked about this statue and what it meant for us and, and what this what this mudra actually represented for us. And as I and I love that it's right in front of the heart. It's this sense of, you know, cultivation and then this expression directly from the heart, quite beautiful. Of course, as I said, there are many mudras. Um, the one you're probably familiar with is just the meditation mudra. Buddha is often exp- uh, that way, just one hand over the other with the thumbs touching. Another one I like is the fearlessless mudra, just the hand held up like that, this gesture of, of safety, of protection. There's a mudra of Prajnaparamita, which is a little similar, but that one I'm told is two circles joining, and it represents, again, the Dharma Chaka Pawatana, um, the Dharma Chaka, the wheel of the Dharma, the dependent origination, something like this. And the one that this Buddha is in that you'll often see, the earth-touching mudra. I often talk about this mudra to people. It's the mudra the, the Buddha gestured with on the night of his enlightenment as he sat down on the Bodhi tree and made this commitment that he would not move until he awakened. And the archetype, typal myth of what happened is that the armies of Mara came to him, whether they did or not, or whether it was just you know, his inner demons and forces of greed, aversion, and delusion, but he was really challenged on that night. And it said that, you know, and then the last challenge was, who are you to think you can become enlightened? Who, who are you to sit here in this seat and practice in this way with this intention? And it said the Buddha touched the earth and said, the earth is my witness. I have a right to sit here. You know, I've practiced, I've perfected the paramis, this is possible for a human being. So I often talk about that when I'm interviewing with people, just that sense of our own gesture of touching the earth, that we also can take this seat of awakening and have a right to liberation, you know, that all of our doubts and fears and judgments really are irrelevant and when we take that seat and touch the earth in that way. So... That used to be my favorite mudra, that earth-touching mudra, but now this one is really becoming quite important because it's, it is our practice, inner cultivation, outer expression. It's what our whole path is about, cultivating our minds and hearts and then expressing that out in the world, expressing that wisdom, that kindness. But the insight that I had as I was having these discussions and we were traveling this group of us on, on a bus 
just in speaking to someone, I realized that also what I related this to were the first two path factors of the Eightfold Noble Path, which are right view and right intention. So I really saw that, and these are the wisdom factors, panya, it's a panya part of of the path. Um, Right view is usually translated as right understanding, right, right, um, right view, and right intention or right thought as the intentions to renunciation, to goodwill, and to harmlessness. So it's really to renunciation, to metta, and compassion. And so as I thought about that, it became really clear that as we cultivate and practice right view, what its natural expression is, is right intention. Uh, These actions, these outer actions of goodwill, of renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness, or goodwill, metta, and compassion. And I'm sure you also know we often talk about the Buddha's path as being that of developing the two wings of wisdom and compassion. And it's the same. Wisdom, right view, (laughs) compassion, right intention. Uh, I've heard that Thich Nhat Hanh said, in the body of the bird that enables these two wings to fly is mindfulness. So I like that as well. We're we're highlighting this wisdom or right view, compassion, right intention. Mindfulness is what brings it all together or makes it possible. When I'm using this word right in relationship to the path factors, the Pali word is samma, and it doesn't mean right versus wrong. Samma means more something like whole or complete or perfected. So it really is something that is a support for us on the path as we develop these path factors. So this is our practice. A practice of meditation as we sit here and cultivate these qualities of, of understanding, of clarity, of wisdom. And then there's the outer expression. Now it may seem, you know, here for a month or two of practice, that pretty much our work is inner. You know, that we're doing our bhavana, our, our cultivation, our development, our inner development. But we need to keep remembering, and you know, perhaps I'm stating the obvious, that we're still very much in a relational sphere. As we're here on retreat, we talked about the first night, with all the other yogis on the retreat, our sangha. We will relate with each other a lot. We have a lot of chances to express either ill will or goodwill, to express renunciation and generosity, or... Um, clinging and holding on. So we are in still very much in a relational mode. We're in relationship to the staff, the cooks and the managers and the housekeepers that we directly interact with in an ongoing way. And of course in relationship to us, the teachers. So we're still very much cultivating (coughs) this inner and outer expression (laughs) of our practice. So we really need to remember that this as much as it might seem a time of inwardness that we're in community, we're in relationship as we practice here. And right view and right intention are usually seen as the beginning of the path. If you see in any linear list of the path factors, they're always at the beginning. It's really considered that you need some understanding to begin the path. 
you can't start from ignorance, complete ignorance. You have to know something about the Dharma. But of course they're not perfected. They're not complete yet. So there's a way in which they're also the end of the path, the culmination. But another way of understanding it, Winnie spoke about this morning when she was talking about the precepts, is the threefold training um, that, the, that is the eightfold path. And when we talk about the threefold training, it's interesting, it's always listed in this order, sila samadhi panya, ethical conduct, meditation, development, and uh, wisdom. So I'm always, I was always interested in this, that in one list, wisdom is first, and the other list, sila, is first, ethical conduct. But I think it's actually really most helpful to think of eight, this Eightfold Path as a circle. And we can enter anywhere. Anywhere that we wake up, that we feel connected, that's where we enter the path. And that we're always perfecting all of the aspects of the path that include uh, wise speech, um, action is the, another shorthand for the, the um, precepts, and wise livelihood, the meditation um, aspect that we're doing here. So we're always in process in this. And it's just interesting to think sometimes putting the emphasis more one place or the other. But that's why so many of these mudras have circles in them. This is, this is really our process. It's not, you know, we're here and we're looking to some distant goal that's separate from where we are. We're really on a much more fluid journey than that. And we're also always balancing different factors. Guy will probably talk in a few nights about the seven factors, and it's definitely that's one of the things that we balance. But as I said, the Buddha in this first discourse in Sarnath said, what I teach is the middle way between these two extremes. And so this is a really um, important thing to keep in mind. People often come into interviews and say, well, should I do this or should I do that? Should it look like this or should it look like that? And I don't know if you've noticed, we always say, well, yes and no, or how about somewhere in the middle, or not so extreme, because it's so often about that. There's no black and white or right and wrong in meditation. There's no one way to do it. It's always balancing factors. If it's a little too much this, then, then we need to strengthen that. There's this great story where someone was complaining to Ajahn Chah saying, you know, I hear you tell one person this and then someone else you tell the complete opposite. You know, you're driving me crazy. What, what, can't you get your story straight? You know, what's, what's the right action here? He said, you know what it's like? It's like I see people walking down a path and some of them are veering off to the right. So I say, go left, go left. And some are veering off to the left. So I say, go right, go right. But what I'm actually doing is getting them back to the middle. No, but it might be very different instructions at, very, at different times for different people. So our spiritual practice is often about this balancing or even this tension between what can seem to be paradoxes in our practice. And these paradoxes, this tension is actually inherent in a spiritual life and being okay with that, being okay with that tension, being okay with no one right answer, being willing to search a little, be a, a, a learner, a, a, a seeker on this path, is actually really important because we see as we deepen that you know the more we refine, the more we see the path opens up to all these possibilities. Just in our practice here, you know, in, as we sit in the hall, 
what we're cultivating, what can, it looks like externally, is a lot of stillness. So the meditator and the, you know, the un, uneducated view of meditator is sitting there doing nothing. But actually, if you're really meditating, you're really active. You're very engaged. You're very um, present, very alive in this seeming stillness. I saw this in this Buddha statue with this gesture. There's such stillness in the body, and this gesture has such aliveness in it. So it's that kind of paradox. A lot of our practice, a lot of our learning is to become embodied, that we really land here in this body and know this experience. The first foundation of mindfulness is really knowing the body, the bodily sensations, the bodily experience. And yet at the same time, we say very clearly, you are not your body. Don't identify with it. Don't hold on to it. Don't get attached to it. So we play in that realm of contradiction and paradox. In the whole realm of time and timelessness, when he talked about time being elastic, but here we are, the bell rings, we trot along, it's walking time, it's meditation time, it's dinner time. We're, you know, there's this sense of you know, very scheduled, very structured. Yet at the same time, the power of a retreat like this, the power of entering any place of practice, is the timelessness of it. When we sit down and close our eyes, you know how timeless that can feel, where 10 minutes can seem like five hours, or you know, someone will ring the bell and you go, it's over already, I just sat down. There's no sense of what time actually is. And each day is somewhat the same. I mean, does it matter if today is Wednesday or Thursday? Tomorrow's going to be just the same. I can tell you, you know, in its basic structure, of course, your experience may be different. But we always joke, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. You know, the same day unfolds and you get to see whether you've woken up yet or not, whether you've learnt to be kind. Otherwise, there goes, luckily we don't play, what is it? Sunny and Cher. I won't sing it to you, but if you know the movie. We see how we have to move towards something, towards our difficulty, our pain, our suffering, our loss, our grief, to actually transform it. Our previous strategy was to run away, push it away, deny. Here we learn that we sit with something, we move towards it, we actually connect and engage, and that's actually the pathway through to transformation or liberation from that. And we let go to receive the ultimate gift of contentment. We let go of our wants and our preferences to find some degree of equanimity, of satisfaction. So we're constantly playing in this field and seeing that there's, there's, as I said, no right or wrong, no black or white, but our willingness to wake up and be present and to see what unfolds with some clarity. This is our practice. This is the domain of right view, of wisdom developing. So there are many definitions of this path factor of right view. Some of the classic ones are knowing the Four Noble Truths that I mentioned, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, which is tanha, craving or thirst, 
possibility of the end of suffering and the path, the eightfold path that leads to the end of suffering. Knowing dependent origination, this teaching of these 12 links that, that start with ignorance and if we're not, don't uh, understand, we get caught again and again into becoming and suffering and lead to more ignorance. The teaching on karma, on cause and effect, that our actions have consequences and that if we can begin to pay attention, we can cultivate and, and uh, act out of like wise intention, more, more in harmony. And the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, these central insights that we can open to through our meditation practice. But I think the basic thrust of this path factor of right view, Sama Sankhapa, is, no, sorry, Samaditi, is uh, alignment with the Dhamma, is really as we practice more, as we see more clearly, Dhamma infuses our life. It becomes the kind of barometer, the yardstick, the measuring stick, by which we gauge our, our experience, which, by which we more rather than gauge, understand our experience. And so we see the causes of suffering. And that, through that seeing, that clear seeing, there's a natural letting go. And this is what we're practicing. Again, this is the realm that we're practicing in. It's waking up and bringing more clarity to our experience. Seeing, deconstructing what's happening. So we see clearly our thoughts, our emotions, our responses, we start to see all of the patterns of our mind and our heart and understand the movements that lead to suffering. I recently read a book that I found very interesting um, called The Hidden Brain. It's by a, a journalist uh, from the Washington Post called, from, uh, Washington Post called Shankar Vedantam. And his basic thesis is that we feel as human beings that we're very rational and logical and that we make our decisions, we live our lives out of this real confidence of, of our acuity and our ability to understand our experience in the world and from that understanding and common sense we make decisions. And he pulled together all of these different, all of this different research that has been done that um, I'm afraid to tell you if you didn't know this already shows that this is not actually most of the time the case. And so there's a lot of different experiments that, that have been done. One that, that I found fascinating early in the book, he talked about this researcher that went into a very ordinary everyday tea room, uh, you know, coffee break room, in an office, in an office building in Nottingham in England. Nottingham is just a middle-sized town in England, nothing very special, I'm sure if you live there it is, but it was just a place she chose. And what she did in this, this coffee room, this tea room, had um, an honor system where, you know, you pay 50p for a cup of tea and 75p for a cup of coffee and 20p for a cookie and, you know, whatever else was in there. And they had a poster, a, a little notice that gave the prices of everything that was in the tea room and un right underneath it was the box where you put your money that said, you know, put your money here. And she charted how much money went in that box week after week. Well, you'd think it'd be, you know, somewhat random, kind of fluctuating around a, an average or a mean, 
But what she found was it would week after week it would either spike and, and stay high and then drop and stay low. Week after week was just this trajectory. And then she explained what she had done. On every week, she would change this poster. The text would look exactly the same, but she would change the graphic at the top. And one week, the graphic would be just something innocuous, some flowers, you know, a picture of you know, grass or whatever, you know, a little decorative thing. The next week, it would be a pair of watching eyes. <laughs> just a strip of eyes. Guess what happened on the week with the eyes? The interesting thing is, she asked the people, and she tr- this tracked this for, you know, I don't know how long, many, many weeks. The people in the office could, couldn't, couldn't have ever said, didn't ever notice that the, that the poster changed, let alone that the eyes were there. They never saw them, none of them. But every week that the eyes were there, subconsciously, they had that sense, oh, someone's watching, better put my 50p in. We're doing this all the time. We're taking in this information from our surroundings and making decisions, reacting out of that. You know, one of the big theses of his book is we spend so much time and energy and money worrying about things like violent crime, murder and theft and terrorism and bomb blasts, yet we're much more likely to be killed by someone we know or tripping over in our own kitchen or a heart attack, or, you know, these much more simple everyday things. Yet the energy, because of kind of media hype and our perception, our heightened perception of these things, ramps it up in our experience. The Buddha knew this already. He said what's happening a lot at this level is a factor called perception or sanya. He thought it was so important. It was one of a list of the five aggregates, these five aspects of our experience that he said was really important for us to pay attention to because these are places we either identify with or get lost around um, or can wake up with. And sanya or perception is one of those. And it literally means the knowing or naming of things. We're making choices all the time what we pay attention to. Every room we walk into, every person we meet, this factor of perception is going. And we don't even know why, often why we like or don't like someone, or we walk into a room, and if we're in a good mood, it all looks great and happy and wonderful. And if we're in a bad mood, it kind of looks dingy and the floor's scuffed, and why haven't they cleaned the windows in a while? This is happening, and we think we're just relating to the truth of things, the reality. But we're filtering all the time. All of our political opinions. You know, what's happening in that? The prejudice that people have against other people. It's all being filtered through our conditioning, through these, whether it's conscious, mainly unconscious, ideas we have about other people, about the world. Now, he doesn't give any good solution to this, unfortunately, at the end of the book. He says, you know, we need to be more rational, we need to check things, we need to kind of... Yes, I think that's important. I actually think meditation and mindfulness is the most helpful thing we can do. Because as I said earlier, what this practice a lot is about is deconstructing our experience so we begin to see what's impacting us, what impact these thoughts have or this emotion, what happens if we pay attention to this and not that. We need to start to bring these 
fact is these influences in our experience alive so we can see clearly this is the realm of right view of actually beginning to get more and more in touch with the truth of things so we can know it so we can see it clearly because but let's be honest most of the time we're in some form of delusion we're operating out of these uh, projections and preferences and our old conditionings we're not seeing clearly I'm uh, always I was going to say happily it's not happily I'm amusedly reminded of this by a regular reading of a column called News of the Weird do you know that? I get it in a, a magazine we get called Funny Times that collects these kind of things you know you're in this kind of realm when, when you think you know what was I thinking or what were they thinking? It's like, what was I thinking when I you know, said that to someone or had that reaction? This is the realm of delusion. And this guy just collects all these stories. They're all apparently true of people doing crazy things. What were they thinking? You know? And what's interesting, I, I just looked at it tonight uh, in preparing for this, and he said, so many of the stories he collected became so commonplace that they could no longer be classified as weird. And he's got a list of about 60 that he said he just got so many examples, you couldn't say they're weird anymore. They're actually normal. So here's a few. The, you know, the classic one is the robber leaving, leaving his ID, his wallet or appointment card for a parole meeting at the scene of the crime. The peace or brotherhood conference erupting into violence. The robber on a getaway accidentally hailing an unmarked police car. The victimized drug buyer complains to police that, that someone sold him weak or bogus drugs. In the middle of an obvious drug raid, the customer wanders up, wanders up to a cop to see if he can buy some drugs. The guy shoots himself while supposedly demonstrating gun safety. The burglar getting stuck in a vent or a chimney. These are all, they've happened so much, it's, it's not weird anymore. The burglar falling asleep during a do- job. This one I like. Gasoline thieves checking the quantity in the tank by using a match to peer inside. <laughs> this is, I, I, I've never, you know, it must happen because these are supposedly true. Criminal on the lamb goes on national TV talk show and, and says that he's wanted for some crime. <laughs> This is not the realm of wisdom. And there's always a category called least competent criminal. That's usually. So here's one. Christopher Lister, 21, pleaded guilty to a home burglary in June in Leeds in England. He he and some friends attempted to steal a plasma TV. They're quite big, you know, most of them, in broad daylight last year, but was easily identified later. Lister is seven feet tall and lives only a few doors away from the house he attempted to rob the TV from. This is much of the world, unfortunately. You know, what were they thinking? What is this? And this is why we practice meditation, so we don't end up in news of the world. You know, what were they thinking? Our practice, this practice of mindfulness, as simple as it is, you know, we just sit down or stand or walk or whatever and pay attention to what's happening to get closer and closer to the truth of things, to reality. 
I really feel that mindfulness itself has wisdom in it. You know, just bringing our attention to something shifts our relationship to it. We're not so caught in it. We're not so lost in it. We actually see it more clearly. We can begin to trust it. There's an honesty if we're really, you know, really practicing. Uh, that there's this honesty and authenticity as we bring this mindfulness to our experience. So this other path factor, this outer expression, is rise in te- wise intention, right intention. It's the intention towards renunciation, towards goodwill or metta, towards harmlessness, which is really the expression of compassion. And again, as I started to reflect, I really saw how wise intention is the expression of the wise mind. If we have wise understanding, it's natural that we'll act in that way, that we'll be kind and compassionate, that we won't be grasping and holding on, that we'll let go. So I said that one of the um, reflections or aspects of wise view is the reflection on impermanence, just seeing that things change. Reflecting on impermanence is a huge support to letting go, to renunciation. We see the fact that things are always always changing, it doesn't make sense to hold on. It doesn't make sense to, to grasp. But this practice of renunciation, it's woven through the Buddha's teachings, very different relationship to it as lay people and as uh, often he was talking to monastics, where there really is a sense of a lot of renunciation. And we might talk about that a little more, about wise relationship as lay people to this factor of renunciation. But as we come on retreat, we really are practicing in a very monastic kind of way. So we're practicing um, this way. But it's not a practice of self-mortification or sackcloth and ashes, of really torturing ourselves. It's really seeing the wisdom of letting go. Seeing that it's going anyway, as Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world. It's, ex- it's accepting that they go away. And so we just get in alignment with that truth. We don't try to hold on to something that by its very nature is actually moving on, dissipating, changing. So it can be quite a joyful practice. If you ever cleaned out your closet, gotten rid of all that stuff, it's like, oh yes, just let it go. And it's the opposite of clinging, to let go. You know, the second noble truth and the first noble truth both talk about clinging as a source of suffering. This renunciation is really letting go. And we never know what will open up when we let go. There's that beautiful Zen poem, If Only We Could Be in That Place. When my house burned down, it gave me, I gained an unobstructed view of the night sky. When my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. That's equanimity. So renunciation is about developing a wise relationship to the things and experiences of our life. But really important to remember, it's not just about stuff. 
a lot of us have gotten to a place where we can let go of a lot of stuff, not that important. The hard thing is our views and opinions, our preferences. That's where we really need to practice letting go. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to let go of things things and still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. So it's really, it's just shifting our relationship. It's not about, you know, having to let go, tossing things away, changing our relationship to things. And so we really see, as we practice here, I said, it's a lot of renunciation. Your simple room, um, just eating the food that's offered, that can be a real practice here. We're so used to all of this multiplicity of choice, having a fridge full of food and restaurants and menus, just really being okay with what's offered here, the simple food. And it's beautiful, delicious food. Really finding a way to make that work. Really accepting you know, the, the great love and care that the cooks put into the food. Accepting your yogi job. Or, you know, even offering to help out in ways, uh, you know, I know the cooks sometimes need help, extra help. It's like renouncing, you know, my wishes and preferences so that I can support the, the, the group and the rest of the community. So, and we surrender to the simplicity of the schedule, to just sitting and walking without all the busyness and the activity and the entertainment that is often so much part of our life. Real renunciation in that, just surrendering to it. Renunciation isn't a popular or sexy practice in this day and age. It's, it's almost, you know, there's been a glorification of consumption. You know, we've had this huge downturn, of course, and a lot of people really struggling, but still, a lot of people with a lot of money and doing. It's crazy things. With, I mean, it's just mind-boggling, the disparity in wealth these days. I just started reading recently about a, a man in India. It's actually in, actually in India, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world. He's one of the wealthiest men in the world, and he's built the most expensive home in the world. You heard about this? This home cost $1 billion. It's 127 stories high. It towers over the slums of Mumbai. You know, you can read all the statistics about what it is. 600 staff to take care of him and his family. The first six floors are just for parking of their cars. Heliport on top. And it's just kind of, again, what are, what are they thinking? And do you really think they're going to be happy in this home? This gigantic mausoleum almost. And it reminded me of a, a story from the time of the Buddha. You know, when, as the Buddha taught, he became more popular. And people from all walks of life um, left their home life and went into uh, what's called the homeless life. And often quite wealthy people did. And it said this king um, left his kingdom and joined the Buddha, became a monk. And, you know, when they say king, it doesn't mean, you know, like the king of England or the whatever, you know, some big fancy thing, but would have been a person of some power and privilege in a, a small area. And it said that as he sat and meditated in his simple robe with his bowl, 
other monks would hear him just saying, what bliss, what bliss, what bliss. And they got suspicious. And you can see human person ch- character hasn't changed. They went to the Buddha and said, you know old so-and-so who used to be a king? We hear him under the tree there sitting, and he's going, what bliss, what bliss. And he must be thinking about his life as a king and his concubines and his food. And, you know, I, you know he's not being a good practitioner. We think this is not right. So the Buddha said, okay, bring him to me. I'll, I'll talk to him. So he sits him down and says, I hear this is what you were saying while you're meditating. Is that true? And he says, oh, yes, oh, Lord. I'm saying, what bliss, what bliss. So what are you thinking about? He said, I'm thinking about when I was a king, I lived my life full of fear and aggression and anger. I was always worried that people would take what I had and I had to fight other people to protect it. I lived a life of torment and suffering. Now as a monk, I have nothing. And I say, what bliss, what bliss, what bliss. Who is happier, do you think? You know, those people in there... 127 stories, or the monk under a tree, happy with nothing. What bliss. So we, as we reflect on, on these teachings, these wisdom teachings on impermanence, on suffering, you know, we reflect on suffering and it leads to compassion. We just see that you know, our suffering, other people's suffering, and the teaching isn't, the, the truth isn't that Life is suffering. It's just there is suffering. But suffering happens in life. I, I work with um, a, a student. She was actually from DPP, and I still stay in touch with her. And she's going through a really hard time in her life. Um, her son is, is really struggling with a lot of uh, difficult stuff in his life, and it's affecting his family, and it's affecting their relationships. And, you know, it really, it's a great, a cause of great suffering to her, but she has such wisdom in relationship to it. And a little while ago, she's talking to me saying the big turning point was when she went from saying, why me? You know, I'm a, I'm a practitioner, I'm a meditator, I've been a kind person, I try to be a good mother. Why me in this situation? To saying, why not me? You know, this happens to families, this happens to people. They struggle in this way. And she said, I reflect on impermanence. And whatever I'm experiencing, however difficult it is, I know it's going to change. And she said, out of that, compassion really comes for myself, my son, and his family. So it's, it's just this expression. As we develop the wise seeing, the clear heart, the open heart, and the clear mind, the natural expression can be this of letting go of generosity, of kindness to ourselves and others. As we learn to pay attention, it's just the natural development. Wherever we are on the path, as we see the truth of things, there's this inner development and outer expression. With the outer expression, our life becomes more harmonious, more in in line, more... more, um, peaceful, more equanimous, and that leads to a deepening of these understanding of this wisdom. And out of that, the whole path really unfolds. We see this possibility of true peace and happiness, beginning with paying attention, paying attention here and now to mind and body, to heart, and trusting that, trusting that we can wake up, 
whether it's the awakening of the Buddha, or in this moment, finding more peace and happiness and freedom. This is what this path offers to us. I want to finish with a poem from Mary Oliver, who I don't, you know, I don't know what she practices, but she is a student of the Dhamma because she's a student of life. And this one is a rather obvious one called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. To lose myself inside this soft world. This is our inner world, this soft, sensitive world of feeling and thinking and touching. Oh, good scholar, we become scholars of this world. And we grow wise with these teachings. So let's just sit for a moment. You don't have to change your posture. We're just sitting for a few minutes to let the words kind of settle. Let the energy balance out. Come into some stillness and quiet. Time now, of course, we're walking. Come back at nine for our last sit together with the chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.